Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. All right, splendid. Um, nice. So, should, should we get into Polanyi here? I have a little Let's bit Let's do it. This is, your, this is your show, baby. I'm here to, uh, to work off your genius. Let's do it. Uh-oh. That doesn't <laughs> sound good. <laughs> Lead us to the promised land. Uh, that's kind of funny, actually. I've been like, I've uh, been reading this. Um, do you know the Taylor Branch series on the history of the civil rights movement? I do not. Tell it, me. He had a he had a three part series. It's like a you know America during the King years. The first one's called Parting the Waters, and like each one of them is like a thousand pages long. Um, but he had this very interesting segment and I'm like, you know, maybe like 200 pages in and he's talking about, uh, homolytics, which is the study of sermons. Mm-hmm, indeed. And so, um, he had this, you know, fascinating, uh, bit about how, <clears throat> how, uh, Martin Luther King learned to, give a good sermon, you know, it's basically just like the practice of oratory. And in fact, the the practice of oratory at its highest level, I'm certain in the United States, uh, that was going on at that time. Um, despite that it had a religious inflection, you know, how, uh, I would say certainly Martin Luther King's probably the greatest orator in the English language in history. Um, and it had a little, thing in there he went back and he interviewed all of king's classmates he went to this integrated theological seminary and um he said that even you know some of his white classmates who really had kind of forgotten most of their college experiences you know like sort of vaguely remembered what martin luther king was like as a person could remember with vivid detail some of the sermons that he had given um you know their subject and there's some some of their language, you know, and this was like 40, 30, 40 years after the fact. You know, you're talking like 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. Right. Um, when he was in graduate school, basically. So I've just been listening to a bunch of Martin Luther King sermons. Nice. On, on YouTube. Did you know... Did- did you know there's an amazing resource? I'll have to get you the link, uh, but you could probably also Google it. Um, it might be connected to his library that has kind of a search function of everything he wrote, something like that, including his course syllabi and his notes. And it's phenomenal because you can uh, search a term like Hegel and see <laughs> see when he's writing about Hegel. It's, it's, it's just um, a nice little entry into how brilliant and erudite he, he was. Uh, besides being talented in oration, just so steeped not only in theology but political philosophy. Uh, in fact, I think I, I recall reading uh, the list of texts he was teaching in a particular course, and uh, it reminded me of, of essentially that same text that I teach in political theory. Yeah, he was a really a, a, you know brilliant guy, and I think that was one of the the geniuses of his oratory was how he 
uh, he translated that sophisticated intellectual perspective into a sort of a comprehensible, uh, digestible presentation that regular people could understand. Absolutely. That's right. And in fact, be not, not just understand, but just be like compelled to their very marrow, you know, the stuff that, that it's like, it's like burned into your soul, you know? Yeah, that's right. No, that's a, a, a fine point because it, it shows how knowledge can be so tethered to inspiration and the ways in which beauty and truth, I mean, this is, of course, goes back to the Greeks, the good, the true, and the beautiful are all one, they're all interconnected. And so if something is profoundly delivered, it it has to be first understood before it can be delivered that way. But then once delivered, it can hit you not just intellectually, but in an embodied way that inspires and moves you, but also keeps you uh, retaining the wisdom and insight of the truth. It's really interesting. Yeah. And I think that 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 study of oratory is is something that is really lost. You know, you, you... like who's a who's a great orator in politics today? Like Obama's pretty good, but mm-hmm. he's not even really working so much anymore. Um, Indeed. Who else is? Imagine there? if Obama actually had great ideas <laughs> and great truths and insights uh, with which to work in his oratory. Just imagine how how compelling they would have been. Yeah, if he had just come come into politics about 10 years later that's right i think he would have been a a much more formidable uh presence anyway so uh we're talking about polanyi um not yet we're not but we're about to i think the the (laughs) Maybe the, the the place to start is with his signature idea, uh, his signature phrase, which is the double movement. And um, basically, do you want to first? Do we first want to just introduce who this person is and why mm, it matters? That, I suppose. No, if you want. Bolani was maybe. so he's like a historian, economist um, type of type of guy, and. He wrote... Um, Friends call was, him Carl, by the way. Yeah, Carl Polanyi. He was from Austria, right? And he moved. He ended up in the United States, I believe. Um, and he was a professor at, uh, I want to say Columbia. I could be wrong about that. But, you know, basically wrote this this one very, very important book called The Great Transformation, which... Um, came out in 1945 he wrote it during the war and uh you know it's it was like fairly influential in its time but sort of was forgotten for about a generation but since the financial crisis has sort of come back into its own as a sort of um you know a a foundational like text of political economy writ large and uh so yeah you know that like basically all we're going to be talking about today is the the great transformation and um 
you know, the sort of basic ideas therein, which are, which continue to be absolutely relevant, absolutely, um, speak to the, the, the political needs of modern society every bit as much as maybe even more so than they did in 1945 when he wrote the thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, definitely a book worth reading for me was a total, you know, an eye opener or a really transformative text to, to, to read. And, you know, so if you ever get a chance, certainly worth reading. It is a real revelation, isn't it? It's, it's, such a brilliant work of both history and economic argument in one. It's so uh, fastidious and detailed in the ways in which the arguments about the nature of capitalism and uh, the things we'll discuss that it also offers uh, an argument and analysis um, that you just, it's, it's really almost impossible to argue against because it's so, uh, so substantiated by detailed research and, and, um, and arguments. So it's, it's quite, quite a work um, that many people surprisingly are unfamiliar with, whereas uh, your, your lay person may well be familiar with, with Keynes or Hayek or any number of, of thinkers who have offered uh, important works on the philosophy of economics or economic uh, thought. So yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's dive in. Yeah. So the, the Great Transformation is um, a kind of a history of economic like development, I guess I would say. And in in every sense of that word, not just like, you know, the specific structural mechanics of how economic systems have have worked and, you know, evolved over time, but the ideological and political underpinnings of those systems, you know, what made them go in terms of people's moral frameworks and behaviors, not just a kind of like arid, uh, you know, description. And yeah, so back to the double movement, which I uh, mentioned previously uh, a bit prematurely, this, this is basically the sort of overarching uh, uh, structure of his history um, because, you know, he's building up to, um, in his history, market liberalism. You know, the rise of the Industrial Revolution, modern economic, you know, progress, uh, economic productivity, you know, markets sort of penetrating throughout the world in all different sorts of things. And, um, what he says, what he, what he demonstrates is that, um, those institutions, uh, when they extended outwards into societies, into nations or across national boundaries into new nations, what, what happened was that they unleashed untold social devastation, um, you know, the, the rise of market economics was in the immediate short term, at least a, a massively destructive, uh, development, you know, people were impoverished in the masses, uh, the, you know, um, 
whole swaths of societies. And he, you know, he focuses a lot on England pre-industrial revolution as the sort of industrial revolution was being prefigured, sort of set up semi-unconsciously. Um, you know, you had uh, these traditional feudal arrangements, which despite being in many ways like oppressive and backward functioned in terms of allowing people to subsist from a day-to-day basis. It's like, you know, every day a human being has to eat, a human being has to have a place to sleep, you know, the, the, the daily necessities and what the rise of markets did as a sort of organizing social logic was just like radically disrupt all of those things. And it meant stuff like the enclosure acts, which took all of this land, which had been commonly accessible for the peasantry of England and forced them off of it and put it into private uh, hands, you know, so that it could be organized more efficiently. And in many cases, yes, it was more productive in the sense of that it could produce more, you know, uh, agricultural yield. It was organized more logically. But those people who had access to that that before, in many t- in many cases, were just completely thrown out in the cold, and they had no where to go. Um, and this, I think, can tell us a bit, if you go back to what the double movement is, what, yes. how does this relate to, to what the double movement is? Yes, what, yes. What is that, just, uh, for, for, yeah, just getting to that. And this is, what, this is the second part of the double movement. So the first part is this penetration of market institutions. And the second part is the almost instinctive self-protective reaction for societies from political systems to stem the damage that... Uh, market institutions cause so you know you have a sort of market liberalization movement you know a lot of sort of you know technocratic liberal types of people who think oh we got to like cut through all these you know ancient you know all this ancient gobbledygook and then secondarily when that causes a lot of social catastrophe uh, people come back and they try to like clean up to say like oh you know crap what you know how do we stop the 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 bleeding that was caused by this? And the, how- this is for me I, such an epiphany when I was reading this. One of the the brilliant things that Polanyi demonstrates here, going against the the ideological framing of capitalism and economic liberalism, is actually quote unquote free market liberalism is planned and. What's spontaneous is the social response to guard against the devastation that planned free market liberalism and and capitalism uh, unleashes. And and it's a complete inversion of the normal uh, way of thinking of these things, which is that, no, what's spontaneous is the market. And the thing that's planned is the governmental attempts to just, you know, keep the market from doing its thing. And what we need to do, say the libertarians and say the uh, capitalists, is to let the market be unleashed. And all the problems in life have to do with not doing that. In fact, he shows through history, it's the devastation caused by the planned market uh, run through the state and the need to react to that spontaneously is what arises time after time. Yeah, he says, quote, 
the road to the free market was opened and kept open by an enormous increase in continuous, centrally organized and controlled interventionism to make Adam Smith's simple and natural liberty compatible with the needs of a human society was a most complicated affair. So yeah, you know, that's, as I talked about the Enclosure Acts previously, when you're talking about market institutions, you're talking about government policy 100% of it's, the time. For those that aren't familiar, what, what were the enclosures in England? Yeah, I kind of kind of glossed it previously, but, you know, this was taking the, the legacy of the common lands from the feudal age and basically privatizing it, you know, enclosing the commons and selling it right. off, you know, and not always. I, I should have said, I should have said for listeners that like Alexei the Greek don't always listen carefully. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> repeating. Yeah, no, no, no worries. The, the, um, I should say that, you know, in, in. Uh, they, these weren't always like, like you would, you know, you'd imagine it's like, oh, it's the, it's like the bourgeoisie, the, the rich, like, like factory owners who are buying up all the land. But in, in many cases it was like, there were, there were, there was a, a small number of peasants who were in a position to buy some of that stuff. And so like, you did have like a, a small percentage of people who, who, uh, you know, managed to sort of like get a little piece of that. Um, who had been, you know, part of the sort of oppressed underclass before, because like these are, you know, in many cases just auctioned off. Um, but yeah, in general, you know, you're talking about, you know, in this, like the, the way that feudalism worked was this, you know, there was a lot of oppression there was a lot of like forced labor, the corvée, you know, it's like, oh, you owe the Lord this much work. But there was also a corresponding obligation on the part of the, you know, elite aristocrats that if you're old, you know, or you're, or you're hungry, there's like the, the, the Lord is supposed to feed you, you know, the Lord is supposed to provide for the old people and the, you know, the sick people. And so, um, you know, obviously that, that didn't always happen, but like it was part of the system and it was what made it work, you know, is what, what prevented like just constant riots and so forth. And, you know, the way that the early liberals looked at this, it was just looking at the sort of, you know, oftentimes crazy Byzantine complexity of the feudal system and forgetting all about the, like the social structural support that, you know, made it function and just saying, oh, let's clear the decks and and not um, recreate any of the social support that that prevents the sort of like mass of population. And you know, you're talking about you know late feudal, early capitalist societies where like 95 percent of the population is peasants. Um, you know, those folks need to be looked after. And uh, you know, if the if 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 the only um, method of doing anything is just through markets, well, if you can't work, if you're too old or you're sick um, or just like times are bad, markets aren't going to do anything for you. And so, you know, it was a rough uh, transition period. It's interesting in, in 
my courses and with my students, uh, it is a revelation that the kind of poverty we have today isn't something that was always with us. I mean, you had, of course, devastation, whether by famine or war or disease, all kinds of problems that affected a whole group of people. Um, and, and modern advances in medicine are great and et cetera, et cetera. But what is somewhat new with modernity and capitalism is this notion, as you referred to before, that in the same geographical space, a very, you know, similar topography, everyone, you know, your, your very neighbors down the block, if you will, could have, could be starving and you're doing fine. That, that is a new thing. And that is specifically a result of this quote unquote, self-regulated free market system, replacing feudalism and replacing those obligations of, of those in the community that had more. Yeah. And this is a good uh, place to bring up the, a, a second key Polanyi idea, which is the self-regulating market. Um, and this is the, the idea that the, um, <clears throat> a, a sort of like basic picture of the economy, which is, I, I would say still very common today, which thinks of, uh, it, it imagines our system of producing goods and services as being uh, totally uh, operating on its own. As yeah, if we generous. Yeah. As if it's, as if it's some sort of freestanding pre-political entity that you just sort of have to appease whenever you are doing, you know, um, you know, public policy of any kind. And, um, you know, what, what Polanyi says is that, you know, the, and the, actually the very first page of, of his book, he's, he says, um, our thesis is that the idea of a self adjusting market implied a stark utopia. Such an institution could not exist for any length of time without annihilating the human and natural substance of society. It would have physically destroyed man and transformed his surroundings into a wilderness. And, you know, and so this kind of, this kind of ties into the double movement thing and the, and the social devastation unleashed by, um, you know, market institutions. And he... Uh, uses the example of um, sheep in Scotland, actually, uh, sheep in Scotland being very profitable, but eventually coming under like certain government controls. And the reason that that happened was that if you just let your sheep run completely wild, as what happened in Spain, is that, you know, he says, you turn sand into gold and then gold into sand. Because, like, you have this, you know, profit boom of market, you know, selling uh, wool on the market. And then you overload the, you know, biological substrate of the, you know, ground and soil supporting the sheep. And then they all uh, die and the, the wool economy is uh, extirpated. And that happened in Spain on those like parts of the country where 
you know, sheep farming was for a time, you know, like several hundred years ago, um, like a, like a live possibility. If, if you construct, uh, these sort of market institutions and you just let their sort of internal logic perpetuate themselves without any sort of controls, then they will lead to social and economic and ecological catastrophe and they will undermine the 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 basis of the entire society um and that that sounds bad that sounds bad yeah it's in fact it's not good um i've been sold i've been sold a bill of goods about capitalism ryan this is uh i don't like what i'm hearing you know that's one part of his thing about the the self-regulating market um, but another another important um, sort of corollary to this is that, you know you're talking about a market society and a market society is not just a society that has some markets because markets have been around for thousands of years but uh, a, the, a market society is one in which like the very bones of this of the society are operated according to market logic and that is where Polanyi's concept of fictional commodities comes into play. You know, yes, like fictitious commodities, I think, are one of the most interesting contributions um, that I've read in, in any work, actually. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you think about a, a regular um, a market. What kind of, you know, what's a, what's a market? Oh, okay, Amazon um, is... Like, this is a market uh, of sorts, you know, um, kind of a platform, an online flea market, you might say, in which, like, sellers, you know, offer, like, dozens of different types of headphones or something like that. So you're looking at, like, a physical object. You know, you're, I'm going to buy this commodity, I'm gonna, I'm, and I'm going to, like, look at lots of different sellers, and I'm going to buy according to, like, the the thing that, you know, I, you know, I want this characteristic i'm willing to pay this much whatever and a commodity being what how would you define a commodity uh, com- it's a commodity i guess it's just like a sort of uh standardized object which is available for sale which is sold through market institutions um yeah. i you think that's a fair definition i do i i think it's it's fungible um it's something that um is usually created for sale for the purpose i think that's an important thing it's created for the purpose of sale yeah the thing it's the thing itself exists uh it's telos if you will if you want to get all greek its purpose its design the reason it's even um in existence at all is for the purpose of buying and selling yeah and so the fictitious commodities are uh land labor and money and so not you know Neither of those things uh, really make any sense at all to apply, to think of as commodities. And the whole point of a market society is to try to take those things, which is to say like the, the physical, um, you know, like actual space of the nation that you're living in, the actual uh, uh component of it um the the literal location that the nation exists and the time of the people that live there 
and the uh, money system created by the state, and you're going to try to jam that through market institutions. You're going to create a, a land market. You're going to create a labor market, and you're going to, you know, m- maybe you're going to try to create a, the the money money market is probably the most impossible, the most ridiculous uh, market you could imagine. But, you know, there's always this tendency, which is absolutely alive and well today, to try to uh, operate, you know, allocate the resources, allocate the land and the labor time of the the people of a society and um, the supply of money according to market logic. That's right. I mean, these are things that are treated exactly like every other commodity, uh, but they're fictitious insofar as they are not actually things that were created for the purpose of buying and selling. Uh, Obviously, human beings were not created for the purpose of buying and selling unless that pernicious evil institution of slavery is considered. Um, And obviously, land whether it's the Big Bang or God, uh, whatever your flavor <laughs> of ontology is, that was obviously not created for buying and selling. Neither was money even. the most. I mean, money is a, a fiction anyway, but it's still a fiction that was not intended initially in its creation and inception to be bought and sold. That was not the function for which it was designed. And so there are consequences to these three commodities or fictitious commodities being treated as if they are normal commodities. Talking about money, this may be a good, a good place to uh, backtrack and, or, or, or to talk about um, Polanyi's history of liberalism and uh, you know, the, the rise of market societies and the penetration of market societies across the globe. Um, because the way that the classical liberal uh, ideology thought of money was through the gold standard. And what the gold standard was supposed to be was this um, self-regulating institution. And, um, you know, that... It, as we've said before, like that, a self, you know, you're talking about this, the supply of money, which is the, the way that the state, uh, sort of sets up the architecture of tax collection of, you know, the definition of what is going to be accepted for, uh, payments of debts and so forth. Um, you know, it's, it's something that is inherently a creation of the state and the, and the way that um, people would try to basically pretend as though the state was not involved is to uh, have the gold standard, a legal, again, a state requirement that the, um, the, that this amount of money is going to be redeemable for this amount of gold you know, it's going to be backed up by gold um, and thereby this sort of dirty hand of politics is going to be removed in a, you know, in a way that will stop 
quote unquote meddling. Of course, you know, it's inherently meddlesome. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, these are legal. These are these are legal fictions, right? So the, the reason fictitious commodities are fictitious is because the state creates these fictions, and the market, if you will, is necessarily bound up with, and totally flows from government, always and everywhere. Yeah, and the, what the what the gold standard is is a legal promise. There is no way that you can tie the hands of a of a nation such that some future government couldn't decide to abrogate those promises. But people, they really are are you know that this the self regulating fiction is just one that really has a powerful hold on people's imaginations. The point of the gold standard was to subordinate the major industrial economies to the logic of the self-regulating market but the you know actual practice of uh diplomacy and you know foreign policy towards you know poorer nations in uh the 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 19th century was to physically forcibly subordinate those countries to the logic of the self-regulating market so that was stuff like the opium wars like the direct conquest of like all of africa almost um and india and you know those societies were basically prized open and forced in forced to to uh adopt uh, market institutions, and the result was, uh, you know, unimaginable devastation in many cases. And the thing about the self-regulating market is quite an asshole. It's quite an asshole. The self-regulating market. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the the gold standard um, in many cases was pretty awful, and in and in uh, a lot of instances, uh, nations would attempt to. Uh, sort of quietly undermine it to protect themselves from it. But if you had no political sovereignty, if you were absolutely dominated by a foreign power, you couldn't do anything. And the result oftentimes was just horrible famines caused directly by market liberalism and colonialism. Um, in um, India, especially, this was a, this was a terrible situation, you know, because, um, Britain conquered the the entire region. They, um, you know, basically forced open their internal market to accept cheaper British imports of textiles and uh, put out of business this vast uh, complex of uh, home manufacturers, which had been one of the major sources of income for the Indian like, uh, you know, people writ large, um, you know, but before the industrial revolution, the main source of textiles was India and China. And they were made in these like fairly inefficient, uh, home, you know, spinning and weaving type of situations. And one of the results of the rise of market liberalism, the industrial revolution and the ideology of the self-regulating market was to, just obliterate those those um, societies that the 
those institutions that had, um, you know, produced all those goods. And so that put them in a very precarious situation, which was made worse by the uh, fact of allocating food through market institutions as well. So if there's ever a shortage, you know, some sort of a crisis or another, the price of food shoots through the roof. So the price of food's going up and the level of income that is available to the to the Indian, uh, you know, uh, working class, just like population at large, is going down. And that's how you get a famine. And um, the, f- the philosopher Amartya Sen calculated one time that, you know, just in India alone, you know, the rise of capitalism killed like 150 million people through all the various famines and the um, knocking them back down the rungs of the development ladder. You know, because before, uh, you know, before these uh, India was dominated by uh, the um, European powers, it had been, you know, a first rank society. It had been it, it and China had been, you know, these these were top ranked societies and they were sort of forcibly kicked back down the ladder of industrialization. And they became poor. They, their life expectancies declined and all of that type of thing. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, this, the, you know, the history of liberalism and the penetration of that sort of logic throughout the world was a, was a social catastrophe for many, if not most of the people that experienced it. This is another truth that today is overlooked by many, which is that the quote-unquote self-regulating market, uh, besides being a legal fiction and inevitably and necessarily involving the nation-state, is also necessarily global in reach, and that whatever happens domestically economically relies in this system so much on what is done to the resources and peoples around the world, like the example you just gave. So I think that's another... uh, There's a lot of things that are elided or hidden in um, the ideology and reality of capitalism and economic liberalism. <clears throat> and Polanyi's doing a great job of, of kind of unmasking them. Yes, and this, I think, brings up the, um, the, the you know, one, shall I say, his sort of more, most contemporaneous argument in the context of his own time and the, the time he's writing this, this book, which is basically to say that the Great Depression, you know, the global economic crisis that convulsed, you know, the entire world economy in 1929 was a direct result of this type of ideology and thinking and, and therefore basically led directly to the rise of Nazism, fascism, and the... Uh, you know, the Second World War, you know, the the worst thing that ever happened. And so, um, yeah, he says, yeah, the, the origins of the cataclysm lay in the utopian endeavor of economic liberalism to set up a self-regulating market system. And this is, you know, at his time, uh, 1945, you know, that time exactly, he's looking you know, just directly at just horrifying war and atrocities. 
this reminds me so much of what we said in a different episode about the utopian nature of libertarianism or just economic liberalism uh, generally, as opposed to socialist instincts, which have really been uh, ways and logics of providing for each other throughout history. And the ways in which modernity and capitalism are both new ways of living and doing things and providing or not providing for each other, but also radical and utopian in the promise and the way in which it conceives itself as being able to function, uh, as opposed to what usually gets called radical and utopian. And I know those terms are contested and and they can be used for, for positive or negative connotations, but just to say that in the actual ways in which what's theoretically going on and what actually happens uh, are compared. Capitalism is crazy utopian and terrible in its results uh, as opposed to the ideal it says that it's achieving, right? Yeah, kind of like background ideology of of capitalism and, you know, this brand of liberalism is that you can sort of abstract all political normative questions away from you know just the 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 arena of political combat and say well we'll just solve this by increasing material prosperity and all we have to do is subordinate ourselves to the logic of the self-regulating market or you know as thomas friedman called it the golden straitjacket and that's all we have to do to get to utopia it really seems to ignore another term that Polanyi used, right, is embeddedness and the ways in which economic life, again, comes from the Greek oikos, which means household activities. So just normal everyday life and the ways in which uh, goods can be exchanged or the ways in which people's needs are met, uh, the economy as such Another fiction created by economic liberalism is that that is a sphere that can exist uh, untethered from other ways of living in the rest of life, political life, the polis, the way that we are together. And he points out that economics is necessarily embedded in society, necessarily intertwined with and inextricable from all these other cultural, societal uh, ways of being that can't so easily be separated so that politics is over here, culture is over here, and economics is over here, and we're just going to deal with economics. The rest of it can just function separately. Yeah. So I think that's another important point he, he raises. Yes, that's yes, that's a great way of put That's a, a great thing to bring up. And No, no, you can you can uh, applaud how I phrased it also. You can give me some props. It's okay. Everything about you, you're a genius, sir. The... Yeah, that's, that's what we're talking about. Yep, more um, of that. I think this this that leads leads well into the um his explanation of the 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 great crisis of uh the 1930s though. Um you know, you're talking about how economies are inherently embedded in society and the uh attempt to disembed them, to create a disembedded economy is what leads to disaster. And this I think is the root of the the um, 
why the whole capitalist world economy almost collapsed entirely in 1929 to, you know, 1933 or so. Um, because, you know, you, you had you know, this set of institutions, free trade, the gold standard, and, uh, you know, largely deregulated finance, and, you know, all operating according more or less to the logic of the self-regulating market. And when that completely exploded, the necessity of state intervention, which, to repeat, was already happening in the background of all that other previous stuff I was talking about, the necessity of new state intervention to deal with this problem became overwhelming. But the elites in power refused to accept. They, they, they had become so ideologically wedded to the idea of, you know, the gold standard and market institutions that they, they almost couldn't conceive of doing anything differently. Um, and, and this is what, you know, destroyed whole societies. This this was you know Heinrich Brüning in the Weimar Republic, just just obliterating his whole country with austerity and um, you know the gold standard. You know, jacking up unemployment to thirty percent and creating such an extreme social crisis that uh, Hitler, you know took power and um you know so well let me ask ryan what parallels could you see to today and, and in comparing hitler to today and comparing polanyi's argument of his time uh let's see if we can try to not be silly but also find what actually is a salient uh the salient com- comparison so what what would you say is is similar uh, or not, and and how how useful is is uh, is Polanyi in, in helping us through what's going on right now? Would you say? I would say it's different in the sense that the necessity of government intervention in in certain circumstances is fairly widely acknowledged. So you know, in two thousand eight they did not just let everything collapse as as what happened in 2000 or in 1929 um you know so tim geithner and and hank paulson and ben bernanke did get together and basically rescue the financial system to just keep it from folding in on itself but i would say what what is different what what is the same rather is how th- the 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 bank rescues ha- were were basically folded right into the logic of the self-regulating market. So you 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 had you know the what happened in two thousand eight was you had this super elaborate and complicated system of finance, which was dependent on short-term funding from around the world. Short-term funding, particularly denominated in dollars, um, we'll, we'll have to do an episode on that uh, maybe later. But uh, you know, in the in the pinch, when it became you know obvious that uh, you know the either the government was going to step in or this whole elaborate system was just going to collapse in on itself, 
uh, the government stepped in and they basically restored the status quo ante. And even, you know, in the case of like Dodd-Frank and some of the European regulations, they sort of made it somewhat less risky. But there was no fundamental realignment to say that, uh, well, if we can rescue the banks, why can't we just actually radically reconfigure the entire financial sector so that it doesn't pose this sort of risk at all, so that it, in fact, constitutes a much smaller fraction of economic activity as it once did in the 19, you know, 50s and 1960s, when it was, you know, as a percentage of GDP, like half as big as it is now. You know, the, like why on earth is finance, you know, 20 to 40 percent of corporate profits? What are they doing that's so valuable? Well, they're not doing anything valuable. You know, they're extracting value from from other places. But, you know, the you know, the fact that these people are engaging in market like stuff and they are. Uh, they're they're participating in uh, market institutions uh, makes them seem to be unassailable, you know? It's like, how can you just uh, say you can't do this anymore? That's, you know, that's dangerous behavior and, in fact, seems like horribly socially negative. Like, well, it's markets. Too, too big to fail. Too big to fail and too big to punish, apparently. Also, too big to change anything about the nature uh, of the ways in which we allow finance in capitalism to devastate the global economy and lest we believe the conceit that the economy is separate from actual life, actually kill people and deprive them of homes and food and all kinds of uh, monetary and non-monetary things of value. You would think that this would be, at the very least, the impetus for shifting the drastic power and focus on uh, the economic engine of the world as the ways in which so many socially determined outcomes um, are arrived at. But no, ideology in part means you're so blind to the possibility of the actual role that state has in constructing these social outcomes that you just say, well, no, that's just, just not, we, we have to, uh, you know, prop the banks back up and, and uh, they're, they're the key. We can't just, what, nationalize them and wipe out all the, all the debt from the subprime mortgages and, and help the actual masses. That would be unthinkable. You know, it's totally thinkable, though, to just let the banks get big again and destroy the global economy, which apparently, I don't know if you've, you've seen this, it looks like they might be headed towards doing again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, t um, Tim Geithner, Hank Paulson, and Ben Bernanke had a New York Times op-ed uh, just like uh, yesterday or a couple days ago in which they, they complained that regulators did not have enough discretionary authority to bail out the banks like at basically limitless cost in the case of a crisis. And um, I think that that goes to show just exactly how much of that uh, that ideology of the self-regulating market has 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 really come to curdle and still continue to dominate our our political economic thinking to this day um you know 
the the idea, you know, the the problem you see that they're trying to solve is that like okay, like this market, this self-regulating market is gonna it's gonna blow itself up every now and then. But their only solution is to just like st- step in with the hand of the state and the printing press and just say like whatever it takes to make you whole, we're just going to give you free money, limitless quantities to fix things up, and not to say that like this whole mar- this whole you know section of the market is toxic, radioactive, horrible. And what we should do is just clap it in irons to the greatest possible extent to just stop it from operating altogether. Like that's a possibility that seems like categorically impossible for them to I- imagine. It, it's so funny. It reminds me of something that happened to me that's an- analogous. So stay with me here. <laughs> I remember uh, I live in a major city in the United States. And Chattanooga. No. <laughs> that's right it's actually atlanta uh, no a, it's not atlanta I, I, I'm, a, I'm a southerner true and true i don't know uh, but i heard outside my apartment building very loud sirens and so i went outside and saw to my horror um police cars flying down my little street at 100 miles an hour like one after the other for what there must have been like I don't know, 40 different cars in a row that I, I untold numbers, right? Uh, just hundred miles an hour flying down si- sirens blaring. And I thought to myself, what, what kind of incident could have spurred this total response where all the resources were uh, urgently directed in some, you know, to, to some problem all at once, uh, you know, gather all the cattle or all, all these, not the cattle, get all the cavalry and get the cavalry there immediately. I thought, oh, a, a cop must have been shot. Yeah. And, and indeed, that's what happened. A cop was shot. So when a police officer is shot, literally empty all the resources at the government's hand and pour them all immediately to address the problem now. And then I thought, well... That's an interesting philosophy. If somebody's in need, if somebody's hurt, you you use everything you can to take care of it. Why not do that for I don't know everyone else in the country? <laughs> like what? Why, why is it right that this certain elite small minority has that philosophy behind it, but everyone else is left to just suffer on their own? And it seemed analogous to me to, to uh, yeah. the ways in which the powerful in finance or elsewhere are uh, immediately rescued with everything. Um, body, mind, and soul we can offer, but uh, just your average Joe Schmo on the street. Sorry, buddy, you're you're out of luck. Yeah, I think as a similar type of uh, instinct, perhaps uh, where you're basically just talking about elite folks rescuing other elites, but in the in terms of the amount of resources you're talking about, like five hundred million times greater. Then, you know, one, you know, what, what, like a, like a, like 20, 30, 40 police cars, maybe like we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, the, the federal reserve, uh, went from monetary base of about $800 billion to a monetary base of like four and a half trillion dollars. And that was to a great extent about stabilizing the financial sectors of the United States and also of Europe. 
um, by just giving them free money. You know, super low interest loans and just straight up cash in some instances. If not from the Fed, then from the government. And of course, the the logic that is often used to not help out the average person, which is, oh, you can't give a handout. You have to teach the person to uh, to fend for themselves. If you if you just give them what they need, then they'll never be able to right. That logic never applies to bailing out the powerful and the elite, um, whether in 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 finance domestically, globally, or, or elsewhere. So, um, yeah, yeah. So 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 Polanyi is quite apt, it seems to. Today. Yeah, to 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 finish up, I think I'll. Uh, it, it might be interesting to look at um, one of my f- uh, favorite passages of his, which is his definition of socialism, and the way he defines it in the context of his his whole sort of system of thinking. And what he says is that uh, socialism is essentially the tendency inherent in an industrial civilization to transcend the self-regulating market by consciously subordinating it to a democratic society. It is the solution natural to industrial workers who see no reason why production should not be regulated directly and why markets should be no more than a useful but subordinate trait in a free society. I think that's beautiful. I think that's that's exactly right. It's It's the inverting of the hierarchy of what dictates to what and instead of markets dictating everything to the demos the people you you subordinate what might be useful uh markets are useful there's lots of insights uh into uh behavior and and how to take advantage of of uh you know various economic insights but as long as that is subordinated to democratic rule and and the interests of the people for whom it's supposed to serve then you've you've actually used something for good and 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 i think socialism is essentially uh at its heart it should be democratic and that's why it's opposed to economic liberalism or capitalism which seeks to subordinate the demos the people democracy really to uh, to these arbitrary forces and to the powerful. Yeah, I think that's right, and that's why that's why I've always been drawn to uh, this definition. You know, because I think that while you know Marx had a lot of interesting things to say, um, I think he had a lot of v- very valid critiques of capitalism that remain very appropriate, very very relevant to this day. Um, I think that Polanyi's definition is uh, more capacious, more accurate, you know, less kind of brittle. And it does. It's agile. Yeah. It's agile, too. And it gets. I mean, simply. Sorry, buddy. Yeah, just I just wanted to say, simply speaking, if you look at any particular policy debate or political situation, is what's going on favoring the demos and the people? Or is it subordinating the interests uh, and desires of democracy in favor of some BS ideological belief in some mythical self-regulating market, right? Like, it's pretty simple. Are we moving towards democratic rule and towards the people's interests or away from it uh, by some legitimating myth, right? 
Yeah, and I think that, you know, maybe concretely speaking, if you're talking about someone who had this uh, ideology in the case of the 2008 crisis, you would take, you know, you would look at the collapsing market system in 2008 um, and and maybe in that case uh, do some of what Bernanke, Paulson, and Geithner did in the pinch to sort of prevent the collapse of the payment system to make sure that there's still money in the ATMs at the, at, you know, at the end of the day. Um, and that it's just not a chaotic collapse of whatever is happening. But after that point, the, there would be a recognition and in fact, moral outrage at the, at the, the crisis that had been created by the greed and the irresponsibility and the short-sightedness of the financial class to, you know, to say that, like, this cannot be allowed to happen. And what we're going to do is we're, you know, we're going to take this market system in the form of finance uh, contracts across the globe and whatever, and we're going to say this and this and this and this is no longer allowed you know, for for all the companies which ended up being taken into direct financial ownership by the government, which was the largest insurer in the country in the world, uh, you know, the two giant uh, mortgage-backed uh, security originators, um, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, we're going to fire all their executives. We're we're going to uh, you know prevent them from paying any bonuses, and. You know, at the end of the day, we're going to restructure the financial system to make it much less profitable um, and smaller in general. And that is the the type of uh, the, the the type of reasoning that seems to be ruled out by the logic of the self regulating market, because people are doing market stuff then. If that's what's happening, then it must be good by definition. And this is why it's so important to differentiate neoliberal Democrats like Obama and the Geithners and Larry Summers of the world uh, and the Hillary Clintons of the world uh, insofar as as she uh, stays consistent to her history because they are at their core believers in economic liberalism and capitalism, and they are ideologues in that sense. And so it never even occurred. I I don't think, did you see any research that says that Obama or his team, his economic team, even considered anything uh, that you just mentioned as a possible way to deal with the crisis? No, I I mean, a lot of it was happening under the last bits of George W. Bush's presidency. but. No, at the, by that point, you know, he was talking to a lot of bankers. There, I think there may have been a, f- a couple of marginal voices saying, you know, what are we doing here? But but even, you know, they were hesitant at best, and they were not listened to even insofar as they existed. So for me, I think there is a... There is, and this is a different episode, of course, a, a debate about whether... Social Democrats, uh, like Bernie Sanders, even though he calls himself a a socialist, he's a social Democrat, uh, are in any way different from the neoliberals in their actual policies and and whether it's just rhetoric. And I I think to the extent that um, 
approach to crisis and approach to elites would fundamentally not just conceive of a possibility, but propose and fight for the possibility of um, favoring the people and punishing uh, the elites who, who did what they did to the global economy. Um, that is such an important difference that I think we can't just pretend uh, that they're all the same. Right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, re- regardless of what, um, whether you think Bernie Sanders has really earned the label of democratic socialism or not, his type of politics absolutely would not countenance um, just, you know, returning to the status quo ante. I mean, the the, the basic logic of, of Tim Geithner at all is that there is no alternative, that all you, you know, all you have to do is you just sit there and you wait. I mean, this is actually Alan Greenspan going back to the 1980s is that if the market blows up, you just have to step in with a blank check from the from the government and you just make everyone whole again. Or, you know, you clean up any bankruptcies um, with uh, limitless uh, money from, from, from the government. And uh, I think Bernie, for all of his, I think sometimes like less than sophisticated understanding of what's, what's happening, he would not... Uh, uh, allow himself to be slickered like that to be like okay like if we need to make this bailout right now we have to do something afterwards to stop it from happening like it's it's just intolerable you know these people cannot be allowed to continue to profit in this way they have to be stopped that's right and whether it's hillary clinton who by the way is not a problem because her speeches indicate she's being paid off by Wall Street, but rather that her speeches to Wall Street indicate the reality, I think, which is she has the same ideological priors and beliefs that they do. Yeah. And and Biden and Biden and what he did with the the uh, what is it 2005 bankruptcy uh, revision. Yeah, both of them voted uh, for that. Right, and and whether it's um, uh, you know, so whether it's it's Biden or or Clinton or Obama. They simply, whether or not they're being paid off by Wall Street, they simply believe, I think, in their heart of hearts that this is how they buy into the myth, right, that Polanyi has debunked. They buy into the self-regulating market yeah. as the best way the to only way. have a political economy. And the only way. Yeah, it's inconceivable any other way, right? Uh, and that's the problem. That's the thing that has to be fought against. No matter how nice a guy you think Biden is, no how, how much you believe that, that Hillary is a good Methodist, uh, which gets neglected, it's, it's true, or how, how much you love Obama. Look, Obama's charming as hell. I love he is. Uh, him as a person. He's a great family man. He seems like a, I would love to be his friend. Uh, <laughs> the only problem is his actual ideology and political philosophy, yeah. right? And, and that's devastating to actual people in this country unfortunately yeah it is it is and um yeah i guess just to wrap up you know it's just it 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 kind of gets to the 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 heart of what people uh what lawmakers and politicians think is possible what is their sort of uh universe of possibility um and if 
if you have drunk deeply from the well of neoliberalism and the well of this self-regulating market, you will think that certain things just can't be done. Um, and if you have not done that, if you are more in touch with the socialist, uh, you know, Polanyi, Karl Marx, etc., etc., tradition, uh, you will think that maybe the state is not omnipotent in what it can do, but there is no area in which the state cannot step to make uh, policy improvements. And in fact, there may be, uh, it, it, it may become necessary for the state to step in in every place. Um, it doesn't mean that it's that it's necessary or moral for any particular uh, action. You know, it always depends on the proposal, but um, that kind of action is inherent and it is necessary for a for an advanced industrial society to be able to operate in a reasonable, logical, and moral fashion. The state has to be there. And, and I would just add, not only does the state have to be there, the state always already is there. Yeah. And the, the state's orientation needs to shift away from the powerful elites of finance and away from favoring unregulated market and instead orient to the consequences of the policies and regulations to help the people, the demos, and, and in so doing become actually a democratic state. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, everyone. This has been a, a lovely episode. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, sir. Always, always a pleasure. We'll see you next week. Yeah, tune in next time.